Welcome to the GB News Real Me podcast. I'm Gloria DiPiero. Now, we all have views on politics and politicians, but aside from the spin and the knockabout, who are they? What makes them tick? What's their life story? And why have they chosen a life in politics? That's what the Real Me podcast is all about. We hope you enjoy a very different type of political interview. I sat down with Andrew Gwynn, who's served as Labour MP for Denton and Reddish since 2005. He's had an extensive political career from becoming England's youngest councillor at the age of 21 to his current shadow position as Shadow Minister for Public Health. Despite his impressive parliamentary portfolio, he had a tough time during his early adulthood, his mother passing away when he was just 19 years old. Andrew started by taking me back to that time. Yeah, so probably the worst day of my life, if I'm being honest. Um, I didn't know my mum had cancer. She wanted to keep that from me. Um, I just started at higher education college in Wales, uh, staying away from home. And I think she thought, rightly probably, that uh, if I knew how poorly she was, I would give that up to come and look after her an only child. Um, Mums mean a lot to their boys and um, she meant the world to me. And so I just knew she'd been poorly. Um, She'd gone in to have a colostomy bag fitted. Um, When they cut her open, her ovarian cancer had spread. She was riddled with it. So they just sewed her back up. We got an early morning call My dad told me to get dressed, got out of bed. There's only one reason why you get a phone call at six o'clock in the morning um, when somebody's in hospital. And I've never seen anybody in as much pain as my mum was in. She was in absolute pain. Her eyes were rolling back. She was just in an end bed in an old Victorian ward with a curtain wrapped around her. And we sat with her. And that's when my dad told me that she had cancer. Um, I don't think my mum was best pleased, actually, because although she couldn't really speak, she could communicate with her eyes. And I think even at that late stage, she was like, I don't want him to know. And then we were given a really tough decision by the nurses. They said, look, your your mum, your wife has got an hour or so left to live and it will be in pain. Or we can give another injection of morphine which is what we decided to do um, out of kindness and compassion but it's not ever a decision you want a 19 year old to be there having to take so that day will probably haunt me for the rest of my life. What are the psychological effects of going through something like that and witnessing something like that at the age of 19? Oh It's affected most of my adult life. Even just small things like your graduation, your mum's not there. Bringing your girlfriend home, your mum's not there. Probably a good thing because the standards would have been set probably much higher than my dad set them. Uh, Although I think Alison would have passed. I'm certain she would. (laughs) That's your wife. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The birth of your children, 
Um, and then them growing up and all the stages, because I had brilliant grandparents, absolutely the best grandparents you could ask for. They missed out on having a gran or a nana like I had. Um, so it's just little things like that as well. And that never goes away. It doesn't get any easier. I'm 47 now and I still miss my mum. I know you're now on, or I think you're now on antidepressants. I know you have been on antidepressants. You are, you are still, and we'll, we'll explore that in a bit more detail later. Did you go into depression soon after you lost your mum? Pretty much, yeah. I didn't recognise it as depression. It was just grieving. Um, but the kind of the, the Churchill always talks about the black dog, and there is such a thing. Right. Um, and the black dog never left. Um, sometimes he'd be in his kennel a little bit, you know, but was always there. You were always aware that uh, that that cloud was there, that something was missing, that the spark had gone out kind of thing. Um, and it was years later, uh, Member of Parliament by this stage, and um, John Burko was the speaker. He'd invested a lot of his um, resources as speaker into helping MPs and MP staff who were experiencing mental health difficulties. And so uh, I went to speak to John. He mentioned these services that were available, went to occupational health, and it kind of flowed from there um, and eventually um, was able to have uh, some really good sessions where I could talk about my feelings. And uh, the doctor at the House of Commons, absolutely incredible lady, and uh, she said, look, it's not a sign of weakness. Um, these pills can make you feel better, normal, whatever that means, just try them. And I did. And uh, I remember waking up one morning feeling normal, feeling like I did as a child, uh, without a worry, without any of the stresses. Um, and uh, it, remember um, the 2017 general election had been called and I was the most senior person of the front bench who unfortunately was in London at just that particular moment. And uh, so I was sent from Labour headquarters down to College Green. And of course, you've got to put on a bit of a, a show. We were 25% behind in the polls and, you know, we were facing a drubbing and um, you've got to convince the world that there is a Labour Party worth voting for on day one of a general election. And I remember being asked... Um, about what Labour's chances are and we're in it to win it and of course we can fight to win and we, we're in it to pick up seats and put on my usual brave face and and uh, the, the interviewer said, Mr Gwynne, you're 25% behind in the opinion polls. Why are you so cheery? And I just laughed and said, oh, it's the pills, not the polls. <laughs> and um, it was only after the evening standard Eight months, nine months after that general election, ran a piece on my mental health. I spoke to them about it, and Kevin Maguire stopped me in the um, in the in the lobby, and uh, he said to me, "I remember you saying it's the pills, not the polls." And I thought, "What a great line!" I didn't realise you were actually on the pills. <laughs> do you think you'll be on pills for the rest of your life? When you talk, do you ever think, "Oh, should I still be on these pills? Do I need to wean myself off?" Tell me what sort of what goes through your mind when you're I've never really like... thought about it. I mean, there is a danger that they become a bit of a crutch, a crutch. And if I don't need them, then probably there's a time to, to wean yourself off them. But how do you know when that time is? 
I only feel good probably because I'm medicated and it, that, that whatever chemical imbalance I've got going on in my body, that fixes it. The moment you, you stop taking them, will that chemical imbalance return? So my doctor's fairly easy about me being on them and I'm perfectly happy to, to take them. It makes me feel normal. Any side effects? No. No, no. so it's no. just win-win. It's win-win. I take a pill and I feel my good self. Do you have talking therapies? Have you had talking therapies? I did have. That was part of the, the speaker's programme. Um, and I only had six sessions. But being able to talk about some of those dark periods, particularly when my mum died, that really helped. Uh, and it helped me rationalise it and understand some of the, the background to it and why she didn't want me to know and why my dad was protective of me. And, you know, it's for the best reasons. My mum was a working class girl from Withenshaw. Um, she was incredibly bright, super bright. Um, she went to the grammar school. She passed her 11 plus. She got really good um, O-levels. Probably would have gone on to do A-levels. Um, but the circumstances of the family. Um, her dad fell ill. He was a docker at Manchester Ship Canal at Salford Docks. Income had to come in, so my mum went to work. She was determined, which I think is a proper working class value. She was determined that her child would have all the opportunities that she wasn't able to have. And she made damn sure I got them. It's not just losing your mum. Your late Auntie Sue was a heroin addict who was jailed for a time too. She was. How old were you when this was happening? Oh, I, I, I was a, probably about 12 to 16 uh, when that was all happening. I mean, Sue had incredible personal problems. I think there is a bit of uh, mental ill health that runs in the family, to be fair. Um, and... But Sue was such a remarkable, strong woman. She's one of the few people i would ever known that if she sets her mind to something, she will do it just out of sheer bedevilment because she can. Uh, and she decided one day when she was in prison that she was coming off drugs. Uh, usually people have the opposite route when they go into prison. And she came out of prison clean. And she didn't touch drugs again. Um, she still had alcohol problems, but she tackled those and in her latter years didn't touch alcohol uh, again and actually went on to volunteer and then work for the National Health Service um, to mentor people who were going through the same traumas, um, which is just remarkable. And she was a, a very strong woman um, who could put her mind to anything. And your uncle, um, on on the on the other side, of, I, I believe, um, who you described as like an older brother, he killed himself. He did. So um, my uncle Brian, my dad's uh, youngest brother, had mental health issues as well, um, and uh, it was just two years after my mum died, um, he took his life. Um, he. Uh, 
attached a hose pipe to uh, a car exhaust and was found in a beautiful part of the Peak District, a place that he loved. He used to take me and my other cousins camping uh, in Edale. Um, we had such happy memories because he was the youngest of six. Uh, so actually for him, um, the cousins were more like his younger brothers and sisters than his brothers and sisters were. So there is definitely mental health struggles in, in your family. There is. What's, what's been your lowest point? Oh, the lowest point. I mean, there have been difficult points in my life, but I, I have to say, I think the lowest point is losing my mum at 19 because you don't get over that. She'd be incredibly proud of what you've achieved. She would. Uh, you know, um, I don't think she ever envisaged me being a member of parliament and uh, that would have just blown her mind. And, and, and also my grandparents as well, particularly on my mum's side, because they were, you know, proper working class. And my granddad was a docker, as I said, and uh, his dad, who was killed tragically in the First World War, was a docker. And uh, his dad was a docker and they moved up from Portsmouth where they obviously developed their dock labouring skills and moved up to the new Manchester Ship Canal when it opened at the, uh, the, the, the end of the 19th century. And uh, I remember being at Westminster Abbey for the centenary of the armistice, the, um, the, the big service that they had with Her Majesty the Queen and senior members of government and uh, I was there as the shadow communities secretary and just sitting there and thinking firstly if my granddad could have seen me now as a member of parliament but secondly if his dad who was killed just after the battle of the Somme could see his grandson not only as a member of parliament but sitting a few rows away from the queen at the armistice centenary that would just have blown his mind. Those things didn't happen to people like them or their, their families. You mentioned um, the 2017 general election. You were quite a big figure in, during that election. You, yeah. were, you were on the tally a lot. You were representing the party. You were in the shadow cabinet. You were coordinating the general election. Yeah, had a couple of tussles with Boris. <laughs> um, do you miss being right at the, on the front line? It was difficult. And if I'm being brutally honest, they weren't happy years. Um, I enjoyed it, though. It's the cut and thrust. Mm. We're politicians. We like that. Um, and I felt that I could add something to 2017 that I just wasn't able to do uh, in 2019. Um, but they were difficult. And we lost colleagues. We lost fewer colleagues in 2017 than we did in 2019. You don't come into politics to lose. Um, I want the Labour Party to get its thirst for power back. For the right reasons, not because we're all egotistical and we want to be sitting on the government benches and uh, fluff ourselves up as ministers. Politics is a force for good. We're all in politics, I hope, for the right reasons, to change this country for the better, to help people um, to improve their lives, to leave a better world for our children and grandchildren than the one we've inherited. 
you can't do that from the opposition benches. And until we get that thirst for power to put things right, to do things for the better, to really change people's lives, to transform people's lives and life chances, um, it's just a frustration. You don't get that in opposition. And I've been on the opposition benches for 11 years. It's 11 years too long. You mentioned about your working class heritage. Yeah. Your party's got a major problem with working class it people. Has. And I don't think it recognises the scale of that problem, do you? I recognise the scale of it. You know, I, I, it sounds really cheesy. I always say when I'm asked by kids in, in local schools, um, what's special about being an MP? And it's not that you can change the law and you can help people and you can do really good things. For me, it's an extra special privilege to represent where I've always lived, grown up, gone to school, brought my own family up. If I mess up, I've still got to go home and look my friends, family and neighbours in the face. And, you know, I'm very aware of the disconnect between the Labour Party and what you would traditionally call Labour voters. Very aware of that. And it's not something that's new. It's not something that could be pinned on Keir Starmer or on Jeremy Corbyn or on Ed Miliband. It's actually been around for quite some time, including a time when, when we were in government. I... Oh, hang on. I mean, you still represented Ashfield and, and you know... Uh, no, and, absolutely. And Barnsley, absolutely. actually do represent Barnsley, but, you know, but, Stoke and all those seats, you don't need to Sedgefield. But, but the disconnect had already started. Uh, it's been exacerbated over, uh, over recent years as we've been further away from power. But some of the things that, um, you know, people say to me, why didn't Labour do this? Why didn't Labour do that? And actually, uh, there are sound arguments as to why we should have done more in what we call heartland seats. I actually wish we'd been as politically ruthless as the Tories now are um, in uh, these same seats, because the Tories are using power to do the things that, quite frankly, we ought to have used our 13 years in power to do. They're doing it for solely political reasons, uh, not altruistic reasons. They've worked a route to getting a majority through the red wall. And so when it comes to the levelling up fund, when it comes to um, investing in towns, when it comes to infrastructure uh, and, and all the announcements that they're making, they are honed into a political set of seats mm. that they have to hold. Mm. Um, and that is causing us great damage. And it's more than just language. Um, it's more than just values. We've actually got to show that we understand the communities we seek to, to represent. Now, um, great damage was done because of uh, the uh, Brexit situation. I'm not, I'm not going to lie about that. You know, my own uh, vote stayed pretty static, but my majority slumped because the anti-Labour vote coalesced around the Conservatives and uh, they narrowed the gap to 6,000, which is the, the smallest that it's been for my constituency um, since the mid-1980s. Not good enough. Uh, we lost the argument when we started talking about second referendums. And I know we had these discussions at the, uh, at the time. 
if you're not prepared to accept an answer, even an answer you might not like, you don't put the question. We did put the question, we got an answer, and actually it was incumbent on the Labour Party to say, the people have said, this is what we want. We now have a duty to deliver that within our values, within our what we believe. But we didn't. We, we tore up the rule book and said, we're going to ignore a whole set of people um, to placate another set of people. And that has, I fear, done some considerable damage, hopefully in the short term, hopefully we can win the trust of those people back. But it's not going to be easy. It's not going to lie to you. Straight talking and um, heartbreaking too. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Green. Thanks for listening to the GB News Real Me podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And you can join me every Monday to Thursday from midday live on GB News for The Briefing, your hour-long dose of political analysis.